Want entertainment designed just for you? Then check out customizable streaming TV from Xfinity. It makes your life simple, easy, awesome. Xfinity gives you customizable streaming TV options. Enjoy the most free shows anywhere on any device and even access your streaming apps right on your TV with X1. Go to Xfinity.com, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Motorcycle Madhouse, presented by Insane Throttle Biker News, hosted by none other than... Well, right now, I don't feel too agreeable. ...everyone's favorite online personality, the thorn in every field side, James Hollywood Machikari and his oh. partner in crime, Double Barrel. Hi, I'm uh, James Hollywood Machikari, and uh, we're here today with uh, author and... Uh, yeah, soon to appear on uh, stage with his own show, uh, written by Richard Labonte. Uh, he's the author of uh, a great book. I just got into uh, Mart, and uh, also uh, the Exile on uh, Front Street. Today we have uh, no none other than uh, George Christie. And uh, how you doing today, George? I'm good, and uh, I appreciate you uh, having me on your show. I look forward to it. Oh, that's great. Uh, how's the weather out there, first of all? Over here in Chicago, we can't ride, but I guess you guys can. Well, it's uh, it was cold this morning. Uh, when I went on my walk, I took my dogs out. It's about 38, and I would say it's uh, probably in the mid-60s right now. Real oh. sunny. Wow, that's summertime. Uh, let's get going. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, the show coming up that you got? I've been getting a lot of uh, emails, a lot of questions about uh, your one-man show coming up. Well, you know, it uh, follows my life from uh, the mid-50s. When the first time I ever saw an outlaw biker, I was in San Fernando Valley with my father. And this guy rode up on his bike, and uh, the whole world seemed to stop. Everybody focused on him, and I couldn't believe uh, what I saw. And I had a fascination with uh, motorcycling and especially the outlaw, you know, lifestyle from that moment on. And in the mid-60s, uh, you know, I got a motorcycle, started hanging out with the question marks, and they introduced me to the Saint Slaves, and then uh, the Hells Angels. And of course, you know, I ran across the losers from Monterey, the straight Satans, the Galvin Goose, all these different early Southern California clubs. And you know, I talked a little bit about that and uh, talk about my journey into the Hells Angels in Los Angeles, talk about the war with the Mongols, how it started, and uh, how it affected the, you know, the whole scene. And then, you know, coming up to Ventura, just, you know, my tenure for 35 years as a leader, you know, I was, like I said, I walked into the world around 1966, and, uh, you know, I still haven't gotten away from it, really. I'm not right any clubs or anything, but uh, I still feel like, you know, I still have those roots. You just can't uh, leave them behind you. Right. You know, sure you understand. Oh, I understand that. Uh, you know, when you first started in the 1960s and the 70s, how would you compare it to what you're seeing today? Well, you know, back then, it was... Even as an independent, if you had the uh, grit to show up and hang out and you conducted yourself uh, like a man, uh, there was no issues, there was no problems. 
And things seemed to progressively get worse. Uh, you know, people didn't want to take an ass kick, kicking anymore. You know, they want to come back and uh, hurt somebody permanently. And, you know, in the old days, you know, we get in a fight by the fire in a bar. And, you know, the loser would buy uh, breakfast that morning. Right. You know? I remember that. Yeah, I mean, that was what we did. And, you know, we would all go to these different bars and hang out. If you didn't fit in, you got run off. And uh, if you did fit in and click, uh, you know, you start coming around and hanging out with these guys. I had so much fun with the question marks and the St. Slaves uh, going up to Kern River and to, uh, the Sequoias and partying and whatnot, you know, going up to early Bass Lake. And uh, it seemed like in the end of the 70s, the attitude, uh, things were turning into people felt... Uh, they wanted to become a powerhouse. They wanted to make, when I say a permanent statement, you know, you, you take somebody's life, I mean, that's a permanent statement. You get in a fight with somebody, and you know what? In the old days, you get in a fight with somebody, you knock them down, you help them up, dust them off, and buy them a drink. Right. The dynamics are different. Right. How do you think uh, the political correctness of the scene has become? You know, I know you're no longer with the clubs, but it seems like motorcycles clubs have become a lot more politically correct than they used to be. Well, you know, one of the big things I noticed, and not with all the members, but a lot of the members initially, as soon as they got in the club, and it's not just the Hells Angels, I felt it was with all clubs. They felt immediate entitlement like they had something coming and that they were better than the other uh, uh, person out there on the road. And I'll tell you, it's a big highway up, uh, out there. You know, there's four lanes and two uh, going each way. So there's plenty of room for everybody. But, you know, a lot of people, they have this image of what being in an outlaw bike club's all about. And, you know, they get a little bit over the top. Uh, I think that it's impacted the, the whole outlaw culture in a negative way. You know, what was interesting, when I was doing the Outlaw Chronicles on the History Channel, the uh, production company found a crew of uh, youngsters from Southern California that uh, were really off into the 70s, like the bike styles and whatnot. And, you know, I kind of admired and envied these guys because they were doing it for the right reasons. They were building bikes, they were riding bikes. I remember one day out on the set, uh, one of the bikes broke down. You know, we all wound up spending two or three hours fixing the bike, you know. And it really made me think uh, about the old days, you know, how much I missed it. Right, right. Do you still ride it all? Yeah, I do, you know. You know, and it's funny, I want to make a comment about that. You know, a lot of people, I get comments sometimes from wannabe club guys that send me negative stuff, and I usually answer most emails, as long as they're uh, somewhat entertaining, even if they're of negative nature, I answer because I get a kick out of them. But, you know, like people thinking, uh, oh, you're, you're all played out, man, you're over the hill, uh, we're taking over. Well, you know, who's we and who's you? you know? Like I say, there's a big highway out there and there's plenty of room for everybody. And I think if people would give a little respect, they get a little respect back and maybe things would get back in perspective. You know, I know the first time I talked to Taco Bowman, first thing I said to him is when we met, I wanted to get an even uh, playing field with him. And I said, hey, Taco, I said, I just want you to know up front, 
if I lived in Chicago, I'd probably be flying in the same patch uh, uh, you were wearing. And if you lived in California, I'm sure you'd be flying uh, the Hell's Angel patch. And, you know, it kind of set things in perspective. We got off to a good start. Of course, you know, things unwound and put a murder contract on me later. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I just wish that the young guys, it seemed like there's a young crew of people out there that know what they want. They just have to have the nerve to stand up for what they want to get there. Correct. Do you think with the younger crowd, because I've been seeing this, uh, well, a lot around Chicago especially, do you think that the MC, or the one percenters uh, especially, are recruiting more gang members than they are, you know, regular guys just looking to go out there and join a club? Is the, the club scene becoming a lot different in that way? Well, you know, I think there's a lot of uh, uh, truth to what you speak here. And, you know, I'll tell you, back in the old days, in the 60s, there was no bike shops. You had to build your custom parts. And every area had a style. If a guy was from the Bay Area, you knew he was from the Bay Area by the type of bike he was riding. Because there were people up there that were making accessories by hand, and people were copying them, people were buying them. If you went to uh, San Fernando Valley, you ran into the slaves. They had a particular style for their bike, uh, you know, just like uh, out in San Bernardino. Uh, the question marks there was a guy named Dick Woods that was doing all their fabrication. He was the founder and president of the question marks, and the guy was a real craftsman. He was so accomplished that he wound up getting hurt. And he took care of, you ever heard of Movie Land Cars and Stars? Mm-hmm. Uh, Santa Ana. Well, he used to do the maintenance for these guys, and they had to replace him with uh, Von Dutch. I mean, that's how proficient this guy was. And so the different bikes were almost like a geographical identity, like an accent. Uh, you know, if you meet somebody from Texas, they, you know, they have a particular way. You can tell the accent uh, by where they're from, and that's the same way it was in the bike culture. All the bikes you can immediately identify, you know, where they were from. And if you weren't building your own bike, uh, you know, people didn't want much to do with you. They wanted you to go through the pain and the ability to learn that machine inside and out. And so that was that was real prominent. Uh, you couldn't walk into the Harley shop bike custom bike. You had to build it. And uh, if you didn't build it, you didn't have much respect from the, the people writing. Right. It was a very small culture. You know, these clubs were like, you know, seven, eight, ten guys in them. And, you know, it didn't take long to get to know them and find out what they were all about. Right. And whatnot. You know, it's, it's interesting. In the uh, stage play, I, I try to touch on all that stuff. I talk about the the aspects of uh, the government coming after the outlaw bike community, the conflicts between the different bike clubs. You know, this whole thing kind of started here in Southern California, and it's like jazz is now. It's all over the world, man. Everybody's emulating, uh, uh, you know, what happened after the war uh, here in Southern California. You know, the Moose Fighters and uh, the 13 Rebels and whatnot. You know, these right. were just little clubs, and then the Hells Angels sprung up out of the Pooh Box. Uh, that club split, and uh, you know the Hells Angels, uh, 
you know, start to establish themselves at a center part of the you know, you know, there's a real history to it. Like, I've been confronted by uh, people on my Facebook. Well, you're not a health angel anymore. Why are you uh, putting this up? And I, you know, I do a lot more stuff on Instagram. And you know, the whole idea is, it's out there for everybody. It's a, it's a history of the lifestyle. And you know, I would hope that uh, I was always a very vocal about peace and negotiating, trying to understand and respect what are these clubs' uh, ideologies were, or what their philosophy was. And I'm, I'm hoping that, uh, you know, it seems like there's a lot of events going on out there where they don't want the heavy fight out of it. They want the old fight. They want to have fun. They don't have want to look over their shoulders. They're not trying to impress anybody that they're badasses. Right, right. Why do you think that it's so, you know, that's one of the biggest things that impressed me in Exile on Front Street was your ability to want peace between clubs. Why do you think it's just elusive where clubs just can't get together and they know damn well that it only benefits the feds? So why do you think they can't come together? I, I think that uh, the ego gets involved and it, it creates... Uh, conflict in people's thinking mechanisms. I think rather than you know humbling themselves and telling somebody, hey man, I don't have a problem with you, but you know why are we fighting? Uh, their first instinct is that that guy's going to think that he's weak uh, or he's uh, afraid or whatever it may be. And you know that was one of the things that I never let get in the way when I tried to negotiate with people. And you also have to understand when I came around the clubs. You know, clubs weren't fighting uh, to the extent where they were killing each other. You know, there was little problems, little skirmishes here and there. And I watched the evolved and the war kicked off with the Mongols uh, on the West Coast, and then we had the outlaws going on the East Coast. It became very uncomfortable to ride. All of a sudden, you, you know, you're riding down the freeway at night. There's a car lingering 100 feet back. You know, you're thinking, I know in the wintertime, I used to look, and if their windows were down, you know, I kick it down a gear and book it, you know, because yeah. I think oh, these guys are going to pull up and try to shoot me. I mean, who has their windows down uh, in the middle of winter? But who wants to live with those types of circumstances? It's not fun like that, you know. Right. Uh, right. Across the United States with a bulletproof vest on in the summer. Right, right. Well, I know I, uh, Big Pete. I actually used to be a Black Piston, and before that, in the 90s, I was with another club, and Big Pete was, uh, he's the ex-regional vice president of uh, the Outlaws in the Chicago well, region. I like him. Yeah, he's a real, you know what, I, still to this day, we talk every day and stuff like that, and he really did confirm what you just said about the Eagles and stuff like that. But I also brought him to brought the fact that I was like, did you know George Christie went up to Taco by himself? <laughs> I was like, that's balls right there. How did how did you feel going up to Taco by yourself? Well, you know, I figured somebody had to make a step. You know, somebody had to make the move. I knew Taco. I had gone to a, a bike uh, a show at Terra Hut Prison, and I knew okay. Taco was down the road. And I, I asked Fairway Harry. We were in the bike show together, and I said, hey, Harry, uh, is Taco in town? He kind of looked at me, he goes, why? And I go, I want to talk to him. And he goes, man, you sure you want to go over there? And I go, where's he at? He 
So I went down there and uh, I walked in and, you know, it was interesting. So when I got there and I started walking up, I think these outlaws thought I was another outlaw. You couldn't see, you know, I had a vest on and I started walking up and then one of the guys goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. He goes, what the hell are you doing? And I said, I want to talk, I want to see Taco. And so they surrounded me. They were very respectful, nothing derogatory, nothing negative. And they said, wait here. And they left a bunch of guys with me. And then the one guy was funny, he kind of laughed. He goes, man, he goes, you're crazy. And I said, uh, well, I need to talk to Taco. And then Taco came out. And I, I'd never met him before, but I recognized him from his headband. And uh, I told the guy, the outlaw standing next to me, I go, well, he's smiling. I go, that's a good sign. And he came up shaking his head. He goes, what the hell are you doing here? And I said, well, I want to talk to you, Taco. And, you know, we opened the dialogue, and uh, it went, uh, you know, great. We had a truce for probably a couple of years. We met uh, in uh, Sturgis that 15th anniversary. All the clubs and banditos were there. The angels were there, the outlaws. Uh, Sons of Silence. I think the Sons and the Outlaws got into it a little bit uh, out near Cutter's Bar. But, you know, all in all, it was pretty calm. And then we had this piece going, and then members started infringing on the other clubs. You know, they were testing people. And, you know, we had a rule. We didn't stop in outlaw towns and get gassed. If there was no other alternative, we stayed in the gas station, filled up, and then booked it out of town. And then people started thinking, well, this town looks like fun. I'm going to go hang out here. And then, you know, the angels are doing it. The outlaws are doing it. And then... You know, Taco started getting pressure, and I'm not even going to mention his name. You know, he's in jail for the rest of his life, too. But Taco started getting pressure from a young, one of the young outlaws, upcoming guy. Mm-hmm. And you probably know who I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Taco and I talked on the phone, and I just said, hey, look, man, we've gone too far to let her unwind now. But, you know, he was getting pressure from his members. And I'll be honest with you, I was getting pressure from Hell's Angels, too. They didn't want anything to do with it. They thought I was crazy. They thought I was weak. And you know what? I can take all that bullshit, you know, because they would say these things behind your back. But when you get face-to-face with people and you start trying to have an intelligent, logical conversation with them, you know, they usually pull in a couple of notches. And what happened was, uh, I think Paco succumbed to the pressure of his club. Uh, and they decided they reached a point in time. They, and if you can look it up, it's online. Harry Bowman... Uh, it's the United States of America versus Harry Bowman. And they were going to send someone to kill either uh, Sonny or myself. Oh, yeah. Oh, they decided yeah. to send them to Ventura. And somebody actually came to Ventura. Yeah. And they had a map. They had pictures of me. Uh, they knew where I lived. Had a gun with a silencer. And, uh, you know, but this is, the, this is an interesting thing. You mentioned earlier that, you know, the feds let uh, these clubs fight. They, you know... You know, they entertain the thought at times. They let this outlaw come to town with two other outlaws. It was three of them. And they let them spend the weekend there. And they didn't arrest them until they left town. Wow. I mean, they were going to let them make a move on me and then arrest them. And they decided they were leaving. And they wanted to get them with the evidence uh, in the cars. So they you know, they pulled them over. And they had the map and the pictures and the guns. Mm. And, uh, all that crap. But, you know what you're saying and what you said earlier uh, 
you know, holds a lot of weight. I mean, they were willing to let us kill each other. They didn't care. Right. Well, you know, some people, they uh, laugh at me when I said, well, you know, the feds will actually go out there and try to set some up because I do a big series on uh, the Waco incident. And I brought up the fact that I was like, you know what, read XL on Front Street and learn about the grenade pin and tell me that that wasn't a setup, you know, what they did with you. You know, I always, oh, bring, I always bring up that grenade pin. You know, this is the thing. Do I think there are orders out of Washington? No, but I think there are individuals that take it upon themselves to think they're, for the greater good, they're going to do this. And, you know, it's like the, the deal in Waco. Look, most non-com meetings have been going on for years. And the, the lawyer that initially set that whole thing up when the war kicked off in Scandinavia with the banditos, George Weggers and myself met at his house in Southern California because we were trying to keep a lid on it, trying to keep it from bleeding over into the states. These guys at these non-com meetings are for peace. They're not, uh, they're agitating the clubs. And, you know, I think it's hard to get all the details of what transpired there, but it appears the SWAT team, you know, was there, or set up, and, uh, you know, it could have easily been uh, avoided, but, you know, they let it escalate until it became an issue. I think that I was told by a lawyer that eight of the nine deaths, the ballistics would go back to uh, law enforcement weapons. It was. Guns. It was. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, this was right after it happened. This was immediately a couple of weeks later. Because I initially I got a phone call from Lisa Lane from CNN. She wanted to talk to me about it. She wound up talking to little Davy from the Mongols. Mm -hmm. uh, and the lawyer, when I was doing all this preliminary work on it, because I was doing television interviews about it, that's what the lawyer told me. He said that ballistics are going to come back to the police Mongols. Wow. Yeah, that's, you know, it's, and you know what? It could have been avoided because the Cossacks weren't even a member of the NCOM, so they shouldn't have been there in the first place. And, you know, in Chicago, I, you know, when when we were around the big rallies and stuff, you know, the black and white would be at an event, the cops would turn, around, you know, turn, you know, the red and white away. Uh, and it, that's just how it is in Chicago. I don't know how it is out there, but they know how bad it used to get here. But uh, if one club was present, they get rid of the other one, so. Yeah, you know what, they have a moral obligation to do that for the community because of collateral issues. Right, right. And you know, they were, uh, you know, the people need to always remember, you know, all these different agencies, they work for the communities. Hmm. The communities don't work for them. Exactly. Uh, their paychecks are from taxes and uh, uh, other things. And, you know, they're public servants at the end of the day. Right, right. Now, Let's, a fun question I had to ask you: The Olympics. How was that? Run doing a you know the torch barrel run. How was that? Well, you know the torch run. Hello. Started. Oh. What happened was the ATF was going around town, and they were telling merchants, "Hey, these guys are possibly going to be bringing weapons in and selling them to terrorists. So keep your ears open." What they didn't realize that we were really integrated into the community in Ventura. And I started getting calls from businessmen saying, hey man, these feds are down here and they're, they're just talking some stories that just don't sound right. And I went and uh, talked to a couple of the 
business owners and they were saying, you know, what they were saying. And I decided we got to get out in front of this. And the way to do it was not only show our support for the Olympics, but maybe we should participate in the Olympics. And there was a way, as a private citizen, you could carry the uh, uh, flame in the Olympic torch relay. So what we did was we gathered uh, money from everybody in the club in the United States. And when I got ready to fill out the form, it wasn't real big, and there wasn't enough room for a Hells Angels Motorcycle Club United States. So I put an acronym, H-A-M-C-U-S, which, you know, AMCUS, and they thought we were some corporation. <laughs> uh, so they, they went ahead and qualify us to run and then uh, and I talk about this in the stage play and I read the story to the LA Times and uh, it was uh, kind of like you know you heard the expression man bites dog it was that type of story and I had no idea it was going to get so huge I mean I don't know how old you are or if you remember how old you were in 1984 but it, would, it blew up all over the world Oh, yeah, I remember it. <laughs> I don't remember you running it, but when I read the book, I was like, that's one of our own that ran the Olympic torch. <laughs> well, I've got the torch hanging in my house, and I've got the Dave Mann original poster that he did for me uh, hanging next to it. And, you know, I forgot to say something. I'm kind of jumping time frames here, but I think, you know, everyone will get a kick out of it. You know, later, Taco Coley, when he was in prison, he was in prison for racketeering. Right, right. And, he and got, plus, he had additional ten years for the murder contract on me. Oh, and yeah, he got the double life and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Then he had the, the lights, and then he had the murder contract, which was ten years. And he called me. His lawyer, Henry Gonzalez, was working on an appeal, and I don't know if you're aware, but my daughter's a pretty top-notch criminal lawyer. Oh yeah. And she and Henry Gonzalez worked together to get Taco out of prison. Oh wow. Which kind of ironic, and you know, it's funny. Like when Taco got ready to hang up the first time we talked, I said, "Hey, Taco, I got to ask you." He goes, "What's that?" And I said, "Are you going to do the uh, life sentence first, or are you going to do the ten years for me?" And uh, he told me to go to hell. <laughs> you know, this is the thing: people would be willing to put that stuff behind them in the conflicts, and I know losing a brother. Is a big deal. I've lost some brothers, you know, to murder. They're unsolved. Right. And, uh, you know, I certainly have my suspicions. But you reach a point in time when you've got to learn from our history, you know, and if our history teaches us anything, you know, the outlaw black culture is like a, it's like an empire. And, you know, when you start turning in on each other and killing your own, if you read your history, that's when empires fall. Oh, yeah. they, they go after each other and uh, you know that's my message to everybody uh, in the outlaw bike world and you know if it cost me my membership in the club because I know a lot of people was thinking I was getting old and I was getting weak I didn't have what uh, it took uh, you know what come to my uh, stage play and uh, you'll find out what my life is really all about because I just let it all hang out in there right uh, well you know what you brought that up and you know, I'm real close to Pete, and then I look at your situation, and it's like, well, how the hell did those clubs call that brotherhood? That ain't true. That ain't sticking behind your brother. You know, you know, you're supposed to be there with blood, sweat, and tears, and then 
it seems like now nowadays it's politics and where we're going to go and how high up in the chain I can get and how much money. Well, you know what's interesting is when I left the club, I went to the meeting. We have a protocol. Mm-hmm. I went to the meeting, told him that I felt I was getting too controversial within the club. I was causing conflict within the club. And I said, you know, maybe it's better for me to walk away now. It's been 40 years. Uh, you're no longer sharing my vision. You know, I'll find a new place for myself in this culture. And nobody had a problem with it. And, uh, you know, I took my vest off. I folded it up, squared it up, put it on the clubhouse table. And, you know, I walked out the door. And it was a long walk to that front door, I'll tell you. It, uh, it was tough because I knew once I got through that threshold, I would no longer be a health angel. You know, I didn't really know 40 years of my life, you know. Mm-hmm. What do I do now? And, uh, you know, 10 years before that, I was an independent writer. But, you know, I think that one of the things clubs should stop doing is they immediately started social media shaming me. Uh, you know, like a couple of weeks after. And, you know, I thought that that was beneath the dignity of not just my former club, but any my club. They don't need to get on social media and talk about club business. Mm-hmm. You know, those there are organizations that are private or secret, and if they want to uh, continue to have the cachet that uh, and the mystique that they have, you know, they can't put their business out on social media. That's not the place for it. That, that's my personal opinion. Well, that and it gives uh, the cops all they need to. They don't even need to sit outside your door anymore. They just sit and turn on the computer and see what's going on in a club. <laughs> that is such a profound statement because what happened was. A few weeks after they started the social media shaming and they changed my status to out bad and no contact, who shows up with the feds, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, there's a murder contract on you, man. You got nowhere to go. And, you know, I had no interest in those guys. And uh, I wound up getting indicted because they figured they could flip me. Right. And, uh, you know, I that's when all that bullshit started on, uh, and I'm not even going to dignify his name. You know who I'm talking about, yeah. you know? Uh, just making up stuff as he went along. I mean, that guy was in court every day. He saw what happened in that court. Mm-hmm. And he continued to write lies. And, that, you know, that's the type of uh, reporting he does. He makes the facts up as he goes along to suit his own story. Right, right, right. Well, oh, yeah. Well, I am gonna. I can send you some stuff uh, that links him to... Uh, Steve Cook and all them boys. <laughs> He's actually putting their stories for him. But uh, what made you come up with Mart? Well, when I when I got indicted, it's an interesting story. When I got indicted, I couldn't leave the house. My business was unwinding. You know, all my former brothers were mad at me. Uh, everybody was talking shit about me. And I thought maybe I was going to wind up in prison the rest of my life because I had eight counts, the last three were mandatory life sentences. And I thought, what am I going to do? And my, I was driving my wife crazy. And she said, man, why don't you write a book or something? <laughs> so I, I, actually, I started writing the book. I wrote that whole book on an iPad. And I would like write at night or in the, in the daytime. Yeah, and right there. there you go, right there. <laughs> That day's writing, I would send it to my daughter, the attorney, and she put it in a file. So I finished the book, 
I was getting ready to go to prison, and I sent it to a publisher, and the publisher said, oh, you're doing it all backwards. And I go, what do you mean I'm doing it backwards? And they go, no, you've got to write your real story, then you get into fiction. That's the way the publishing business. So I went, I went to prison, uh, spent a year with the Banditos. We stepped up together, had a blast in Texas. And when I got back, the History Channel immediately started calling me about doing Outlaw Chronicles. So I, I got caught up in that. And then a literary agent, I was staying in New York, filming the whole winter, and uh, a literary agent that had a lot of juice got a hold of me, and she goes, I can get you a book deal. You know, and I let her read my fiction book. She goes, okay, you can write. So, okay, this is what we're going to do. And uh, so I started working on Exile uh, as uh, I was waiting for uh, Dalbar Chronicles to come on. So, I wanted, if you read Mars and you pay attention, which I'm sure you have, you can see the whole dynamics of that law white culture changing uh-huh. uh, with Jack Crest. You know, he's trying to keep it old school, and the feds and these other white clubs and these egos are getting involved. And it's really a book about how everybody in the end kind of compromises, and even kind of the hero of the book, Jack, has to wind up doing something he doesn't want to do. And, you know, have you read it, the whole thing? Well, I just started. I'm in Chapter 3 right now, so. Okay. I, well, just got it. I just got it. I'm not going to do a spoiler alert. <laughs> right now, it's, I was I'm reading it before book. I got on with it's you. Three it's three volumes. There's another volume that's I'm about a quarter of the way through, and then there's a final volume, uh, but the stage show kind of uh, got in the middle. I'll, I'll tell you, I got 90 minutes of dialogue that, uh, you know, I work on every day. And I'm trying to, like, fine-tune it. And uh, do you know anything about Richard LaPlante? He's one of the best. I, I love his uh, work. I'm a, yeah, big, I'm a big literary guy, so I love reading. Have you checked out his, uh, he has an ear movie out where it's, uh, him talking and he's this guy that goes on this ride and he's talking to a psychiatrist and it's uh, uh, it's the funniest damn thing uh, it's, he calls it an ear movie and uh, Terrence Stamp is one of the uh, voices in it uh, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. <laughs> I can't think of the name of the, of the damn thing how did you uh, get ho- how did you get hooked up with Richard? we both live and Ojai was just serendipitously uh, we met, you know. And wow. uh, we've become, you know, like good friends. I've known him a couple of years now. And, you know, like, it's funny, when I first met him, that's when I just got back from prison and I was getting threats from all different ends from people. You, gotta, you know how it is. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I was determined I wasn't uh, going to change anything. Like, I would go out walking every day and I started running into him. And then by paranoia, I start thinking, I wonder who this dude really is. <laughs> uh, you know, over the couple of years, he just became close. Right. Uh, wow. Last with him. You know, he's, he's written this, and he's directing it. Oh, wow. So, so it's, 
there's no Hollywood stuff to it. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, you know what? I think it's more real because it's on stage. You know, I'm more of a stage guy than a movie guy because you get to feel the atmosphere. You get to, you know to see the actor emotions in person and you get more involved in the story so i'm more into the stage type of you know broadway i you know yeah i'm a biker but I, that's my you know i'm a chicago kid i love that shit but uh, uh it's really interesting doing it on stage you know because you got the lights and you got the cues and you've got pictures and we got music and you've got videos <laughs> i'm real excited about it have you been having a tough time with your lines learning them yeah, I'm, uh, you know, I'll tell you, I never met a camera or audience I didn't like. <laughs> Are you doing a lot of ad lib during it? Yeah, yeah. I, I, what I've got is I've got the basic content. So, you know, you can probably see that show ten times and it's different every time you see it. Oh, it's that's the same beautiful. content. But how I describe it is, you know, different. Uh, and, you know, i got to be honest with you. Sometimes I remember stuff, uh that I haven't thought about in, you know, 20 years, you know, and it's, uh, it's a real cathartic for me. You know, I'm, I'm really having a good time. I, you know, I never thought at 70 years old, man, I'd be doing anything like this. You know? <laughs> it's real exciting for me. How many uh, shows you guys got uh, scheduled right now? We've got uh, 10 shows scheduled right now. We've got one in Ohio where it starts, two in Santa Barbara, two in Sacramento, Two in Palm Springs and three in Vegas, and then we're moving uh, east. We've got an Indiegogo campaign. Yeah, we're going to be. Doing a, we're doing it different. What we're doing is we're not just asking for money. Like we're giving people something for their money. Like you know, you can uh, you know support the uh, project, but you get something in return, whether it be tickets or a book or uh, a T-shirt, a uh, poster, and uh, we want to take this show across the country and up into Canada and I, you know, I'm hoping that uh, people will get behind it and uh, allow us to do that for them. I've got a lot of response, a lot of people from all over the country, uh, you know, asking uh, if we're going to come their way and, you know, the answer is we want to come your way and uh, we're going to do everything in our power to get there. Well, so everybody knows uh, through uh, Insane Throttle Biker News, we're going to have all uh the links up for the Indiegogo and uh, the show information, you'll find it all over the front page and stuff because we really want to support George on this. So uh, everybody that uh, is out there, start clicking that link when I get it up. <laughs> oh, I, I'm hoping that uh, we get to Chicago, man, and I'm going to see you face to face. Oh, man. <laughs> that would be, a, that'd be uh, a pinnacle of everything I did, man, because, you know, I really... You know, a kid growing up uh, like I did in the 80s and 90s, it was all about, you know, George Christie with the Hells Angels, then you got, you know, the Taco Bowman on the, it was, you guys were the real deal. It's not like it is today. You know, you got a lot of fakes, if you ask me, and you guys, you know, were the true, you know, innovators of what outlaw bikers were supposed to be. Well, you know, I hope you bring Brutus with you. Oh, yeah, Big P to be there. <laughs> He's on every, uh, he does a show called The Boss on our YouTube channel. He comes on uh, every Thursday, and he uh, also does a live thing on Insano Throttle, talks to everybody and all that He's stuff. He's a smart guy. He's oh. sharp as a tack. Oh, my God, is he? He is, you know, he likes to say he uh, 
farther to the draw, at least, than Chicago. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> say you know what you imagine if the big five ever came together as one at one table <laughs> the powerhouse that it could be you know well, I was like 40, you know and uh, I uh, you know I don't think it's you know too late and maybe there's a, a generation coming right over the horizon that uh, will have the uh, nerve to step up, up in uh, how like it really is because uh, you know, people go to prison for the rest of their lives. People get buried uh, uh, way too young. It doesn't make any And we want to thank George Christie for coming on the Madhouse. That was one hell of an interview, wasn't it, guys? And uh, next week, don't forget to join in. We're going to have the Black Dragon from Black Sabbath, MC, who's the national president, come on uh, the Madhouse and talk to us a little bit. Uh, but right now, uh, let's go in and uh, get talking again with some Q&As right now with uh, me and uh, Double Barrel. So how's everything going, Double Barrel? Living it up. Living it up. <laughs> okay, uh, we received some uh, more questions from the, the last uh, podcast we were doing with Iron Order. Uh, we have a mixed bag of uh, different questions. So let's get to uh, Greg's question. Uh, he's from, and it don't say, but it's Greg Jerson. He asked, do you guys feel that the MC community will ever get back to before the way it was in the 1980s. What do you think, Double Barrel? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Plain and simple. No, it, it it just can't. It's a it's a different world. It it really is. What do you think? Why do you think it's a different world? <sighs> Besides, it's, you know, all the PC crybaby whiners and all that that we have today. Well, then you just answered. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's 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 what it is. You know, it's just people aren't people. I don't think people are loving their patch as much as they should. I don't, there's a lot. They won't back it up majority of the time. If they do, they go straight to jail because somebody's got a camera phone out or there's a camera at every fucking stoplight. I mean, 
how the hell are you supposed to bring it back to what it was? And not that in the 80s everything was violent. No, but, you know what? I can, you, you know, know what? Even thinking back to what the 80s used to be, I think it was more fun than it was violent, but people were more real than they are right, today. Right, but that's my, that's what I'm saying is, um, you know, if there was an altercation, it would be taken care of pretty much on the spot. Nowadays, well. Well, you got to wait for the cops to get there. <laughs> you know. Well, that's if somebody calls them, which most likely they will. <laughs> well, know? that's what I'm saying. You know, the cops get there because, you know, people nowadays don't know how to keep their mouth shut. And, you know, they'll run because they got an ass whooping. And then, you know, all of a sudden, you know, the cops show up on you. Right. Because back in the day, that's what they would do. They would, uh, well, you would get in a fight, right? And nobody would call the cops. They'd be more looking than, you know, recording or call the cop. Nowadays... Everybody will call the cops, you know, even if a club doesn't, everybody else will. So, you know, I don't know. I was talking to you right before we went on. If I could take a time machine back to even the 90s, what people would say, how it is, it, you know, the way things are today and how they would call me an idiot and wouldn't believe me. Oh, yeah. They think we were completely full of shit. <laughs> right. <laughs> and you know what? To be honest with you, if you brought if you asked me back then, too, I would have said you were completely full of shit. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, you know, Greg, I don't think uh, the MC community or the MC uh, club scene will ever go back to the 1980s. I, I really don't think it can. No, I don't think so. no. Uh, Joe, uh, being a member of a support club in the Midwest, I have a lot of disgust for our local dominant because of the treatment they have given us. Some of us feel stuck. Any thoughts on this? You know, we get that question a lot. All the time. Um, oh, who was that, Joe? Joe. Yeah. Okay, Joe. Honestly, you gotta you gotta talk to your members. You have to decide for yourself. I, I you know. Plus, you, you joined that club. You knew what it was. Whether you saw how it is now coming or not, we hear that complaint a lot lately. I there's really not much to add to it. I don't know. What I would add to it is if you're feeling, you know, the way you're being treated uh, sucks, well, maybe it's time to back your patch and stand up and be a man. You know, that's something you can do as a club. That's actually what you're supposed to do as a club. Instead of uh, asking us, you know, what should we do? What should we do? Well, you're a man before you are a patch holder. So if you're getting treated like shit, maybe you need to stand up and... uh, well, as men, as a club. As a men, you know, as a club as a whole, if you're yeah. not standing up as, you know, a club as a whole, what the hell's the point of being in the club? Right. That's it, my point. <laughs> but, like I said, you know, you, you put that patch on, that's part of it. Oh, yeah. You know, <laughs> you know what you're in for. Respect your patch. That's the biggest one. So the best thoughts I can give you, uh, Joe, is stand up, you know. Yeah, yeah that's about it. <laughs> that's, that's all you got. So, uh, let's see. Next one, Don. I can't even pronounce it. Don Hedger. Okay, we'll go with that. To me, everything you guys have been saying makes perfect sense on why you're talking about it. Why do you think that there's those that just don't understand it or want to write hater shit? Uh, what's the question? I I don't know. <laughs> Thanks for pointing it out. Thanks, bud. <laughs> I think I think he's referring to like the ones that just want to talk shit, right? You know, like the uh, 
what are the what are they called when uh, they go to every goddamn post and say something stupid? Yeah, those are haters. Well, yeah. Oh. Uh, I'm glad we make perfect sense, but uh, maybe next time, Don, send us a question that makes sense to us, and we can answer it for you. Yeah, well, I don't know what you're referring to. So, uh, let's go to Philip. Uh, for clubs that have LEs in their club and want to keep the peace, what do you think the biggest mistake majority of them make? I'm sure Hollywood will say they have cops, but I will would really like to hear your guys' opinion. Well, they got cops, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, That's the problem. Uh, what the they, fuck? They got cops. Hey, at least he already knew what you were going to say. What an ugly thing to say. <laughs> yeah, like I said, at least, uh, at least he already knew what you were going to say. Well, you know, I, I think people don't get my stance on cops. Uh, well, I think they get it. Well, well hopefully they do. Uh, uh I don't believe cops should be wearing a three-piece patch. Just, just the way you know that I was raised and how I came up in the club scene. Cops didn't wear three pieces. They wanted, uh, you know, the only cop club that was really ever around uh, when I was around was what the Blue Knights, and nobody paid attention to them. Well, yeah, I don't know about that. They were they they started a in lot the of Chica shit. in the Chicago area yeah, anyway. They started a lot of shit to where they had to be recognized. I'm sure you'll agree. Well, the with problem that. is with them starting shift, the first thing they do is they pull the badge on the cop. That's well, yeah. what pisses people off. Now, yeah. if you're going to be in a motorcycle club and a cop, right? Why are you pulling your shit out? Well, you start the shit, finish it like a man. Yeah, but I don't think that was really the question. I think he was saying if we got past that, what would we have to say to help them? Well, the problem is, uh, I don't think any club, traditional, 99% or 1% is ever going to get, a, you know, get away from, you know, the one you know, with the cops being involved in the club. Because you got to remember, a lot of these guys in the 70s and 80s, and even in the 90s, were getting pulled over, they were getting harassed, and, you know, why did, you know... Mm -hmm. uh, I can't even go. I'll get that'll get me going. <laughs> well, you know what though, I, I get I get the question. I don't know why you would ask us, but I get the question. Um, my, you know, I come to think of it, I I got one. You get guys like obviously you're in a cop club. Um, who the guy who answered the question or asked the question, right? Obviously you're in a cop club. My biggest thing is is if you're trying to keep peace. If you have a, a mixed bag of cops and non-cops, don't try... Like, I hear a lot of cop clubs, or I guess... I don't know why they don't all put on LEMCs in a one-piece patch. Well, really no, don't. but what I'm saying is, is he's tra he's asking, you know, it, how to keep the peace. And I hear a lot of these guys with mixed bags of cops and normal, but they put them in, uh, like, sergeant positions and president's positions and shit like that. I need you guys to understand something. If you do that, you will never be able to talk to another club because they won't never. talk to you. Never. You know what I mean? So let's say you have a, a, a club that, that would like to start a dialogue with another club and they send a cop to do that. There's not going to be a dialogue. You're not going to be able to say anything because they're going to find out he's a cop and they're just they're going to say shit. 
what's your feelings on it? What's your feelings on cops being in clubs? Um, my feelings stem more from should cops ever put on a one percent? Mm -hmm. I I'm not the biggest like the three piece thing. I think that the the whole three piece theory is dead and gone. I really do. Well, that's because I'm old. Well, but no, no, I do. I, I really feel that the three-piece theory is dead and gone. Whether we want to admit it, whether we like it, it it's just it what it is. Mm. Um, now, I've been hearing a lot of cops are putting on 1%. Yeah, just like uh, the ones uh, Big Pete actually called out a couple weeks ago, the overlords. There's a Chicago active-duty cop trying to be a one percenter. What okay. the fuck is that? Right. And this goes back, we had a conversation in one of the madhouses that it's watered down. Nobody knows what it means anymore. Mm -hmm. It's so watered down. And I, the startup clubs and even the, the supposed pop-up clubs, some of these guys are instantly putting it on it. And, and they don't know what it means. They just don't. And if you have a mixed bag club and you have a cop in it, which is all your decision, I, I really don't give a fuck one way or another. My point is, is don't put the 1% on Figure out what it means. Do something. Mm -hmm. and, and I don't think people know enough about their history. I don't think they understand that patch. And it's just leading to a fucking road of bullshit. You know, that just doesn't need to be. There's clubs popping up faster than we can count. Right. Once you hear about one, three more started up. Well, we do got the Mayans starting later this year, so I'm sure there'll be more clubs popping well, up. Yeah, but that goes back to how can you watch the show where everybody's fucking dying and going, I can't <laughs> wait to join. You know, this is this is going to be great. So my, my answer to you would be stop putting cops in president's positions to where they might have to talk to another 1%. You'll never get them to talk to them, ever. You're never going to work out anything between two clubs with a cop doing the Well, my question know, is... Mediator to double barrel is why do you think bikers don't like cops? Why do I think they don't? Yeah. <laughs> An array of shit, honestly. I think a lot of them how about this? I'm sure you'll agree with it. A lot more of the hatred is more like bred into them. Just like you always say. You're more bred into I hate cops. Well, the, I think the reason why I hate cop is because when I was riding with uh, the one club in the 90s, uh, during 94 and 95, it wouldn't amaze me uh, each week if I got pulled over, harassed, and on the side of the road for three hours because of what was going on in Chicago, even though it didn't have anything to do with us. Yeah, but you know what? You can say that now, too. You know, I, every, single, um, every single club, I, I don't care who it is, I'm sure we'll say they get pulled over all the fucking time. Because yeah, the 90s cops, in Chicago were bad, man. <laughs> no, 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 because cops don't, and that's another thing. The cops nowadays don't do any separation. Hmm. They don't know the clubs. I mean, certain ones do, but they don't know what individual patches mean. Hmm. So they'll just pull over in a broad spectrum. Just like you were talking about in Australia, where even... Fuck, I know places where hog members are getting pulled over because the cops can't distinguish between any of it. Right. You know? So that's why I say I don't even think it's the three-piece shit anymore. I just think it's in general. It's the world. Mm -hmm. You know? So I'm not going to go into 
a big well what do you think of thing well you know? what do you think about this and this is something that's pretty serious out there and this goes towards his question mm-hmm. this alliance of law-abiding clubs you actually got cop clubs trying to run the alliance with other clubs that are supposedly i just got an email this morning about the titans mc they used to be a one percenter club out in West Virginia, and now they're spread out, you know, with the help of the internet and all that crap. Mm-hmm. And now all of a sudden, they got big and bright the law abiding uh, motorcycle club association on them. What kind of shit is that? Well, I don't know. I can't speak for them. I don't know. I don't. I. <laughs> How do you what? go to be from a one percenter club to this law abiding bullshit? Well, you know what. I how also can you think, be, how, I also uh, think can that you 99% be, and law-abiding kind of mean the same shit. I just don't think they say it that way. Well, my question, but I guess, is how do you join an association ran by a bunch of cops? Well, yeah, but did they join the association? Yes, yeah, right they, there. The logo's right on their, uh, their website. Well, because I know lately there's been a lot of clubs that have been put on the law-abiding sites that they're just putting them there. Yeah, by the way, you guys at Alliance of Law-Abiding, you know, clubs or whatever you fairies want to call yourselves, don't put clubs on there that don't want to be on there, man. Don't you think you should ask their permission? Well, that's the thing. You know, I don't care if a club says, hey, we're law-abiding. I've been noticing that they're up there, like they're part of this alliance. They never said they wanted to be a part of your fucking alliance. (laughs) (laughs) But you know what? That goes both directions. I see sites that do one percenter fucking clubs, and they're putting clubs on there that aren't one percent. Right. You know what I mean? Well, you know what? That might be uh, just a regular site, but this is actually an association with officers and members that are out there trying to uh, say that these are the clubs that are a part of their alliance. So Yeah, but they're probably just trying to prove a point that they're bigger than they actually are. <laughs> and, and you know what? And again, that's fucking sad. It, it really is. Because you look at it like this. You look at it as this is what the world has become. Mm-hmm. And to guys like us, <laughs> it's just like, what the fuck? Well, what really bugs me about this alliance is they got right on their website, their main purpose is to gather intelligence. What's that telling you? <laughs> it's a, I, you know what? I don't even, I don't know enough about these fuckers to say anything like awesome. You, you know, know I, saying? you know, I've tried I, to get some of them on the show. I guess they don't want to come and talk to us. Uh, I've tried to get Lollipop to come on the show. I'm calling you out again, Lollipop. I told oh, you every man. damn one, I'm going to call you out, buddy. <sighs> you got to come on. <laughs> If I was Iron Legacy members right now, I'd be looking at you like, what kind of dope are you, man? You got to come on, defend yourself, man. Well, if I was, I, I, man, I don't know. I don't know how the hell you could be after being called out, after all the crap you did. How the fuck you're still Iron Legacy member? Fuck. How oh, he's even in charge of Iron Legacy. Well, no, how the hell the members of that club even sit, sit there? You know, your, your, your guy, your, your boss, how, how we put it, your boss got called out and he didn't do shit. <laughs> and that don't make you guys go, what the fuck? I don't know what to tell you. Well, you know, Lollipop, what I think of you, buddy. <laughs> Man, you are one pathetic loser. Oh, that's... <laughs> I, you know, <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, 
having fun on the madhouse today. Yeah, it's it's one of those days. <laughs> but you know, honestly, I I can't speak enough to them. I don't know. I, I really don't know. I, I I don't know enough about them. I know that I have seen on their site clubs that aren't a part of this, but they get added. And yeah, if I was those clubs, I'd be up on that shit right away. Because it's you, out there making them look bad right now. Yeah, but you know what? Some of the bigger clubs, they probably, you know, there's enough shit going on in the world. I mean, yeah, I'd probably pay attention to it, but there's a lot of shit going on in the world to where, you know what? Fuck the internet. <laughs> I'm sure is where they're at. <laughs> and I get that. I do. <laughs> I, I may not agree with it, but I get it. Right. Well, you know, that's all the questions we have for today. Uh, we are still waiting for a response from Tilt from the Iron Order because we uh, promised you that we'd reach out to him. Yes, yeah, so stop asking us fucking Iron Order questions. We're trying. <laughs> God damn. Tilt, you got to come on the show. <laughs> they so blowing my email box up. Yeah, they still want they still want the president guy. Yeah. God damn. <laughs> Blackjack, if you're listening, you started a shitstorm. <laughs> like, well, you didn't start a shitstorm. Well, he but. he sucks, man. Now I got all these fucking emails, man. You got to get out here, Tilt. Yeah, got to he, get out here. <laughs> he definitely stirred the pot uh, of what the stereotype is. <laughs> Holiday tips and wine stories from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine and More. There are 10,000 wine grape varietals worldwide. Here's to thousands and thousands of gift possibilities. Chardonnay paired with lobster mashed potatoes? Simply delicious. I know just the right $10 bottle for your white elephant party. The most stolen gift award is yours guaranteed. As you check off that gift list this holiday season, we'd love to share our always low prices and ridiculous selection at Total Wine and More. Cheers! Holiday tips and wine stories from Kristen and Paul at Total Wine and More. The sweetness of a maple glazed ham paired with a bourbon barrel aged Cabernet. We went there. Now my taste buds are hopping. I can help you impress the boss with a great bottle of wine. Here's to a raise in 2019. As you check off that gift list, we'd love to share our always low prices and ridiculous selection at Total Wine and More. Come explore at our 12 Northern Virginia locations. Now open in Reston at Plaza America Center, across from Whole Foods. Shop online at TotalWine.com.